hello everyone. As we speak, it's London EdTech Week in the UK. So to celebrate, we're putting out an episode of the EdTech podcast every day this week. You'll be hearing from a mixture of amazing teachers and educators, ministries of education, EdTech companies, sleep specialists, and much, much more recorded all over the world. If you enjoy listening, give us a shout out on Twitter at Podcast EdTech and share the London EdTech Week hashtag, hashtag EdTechWeekLDN. Normal service resumes next week. Enjoy! I'm here with Kuhn and Armand, both from the Top 50 Teach Prize and, and beyond probably. And it's very early on the first day of the Global Education Skills World Forum. And uh, these two are having a deep in conversation in the corridor. So I've nabbed them both and got them to come on the podcast. So um, perhaps you can kick off just by uh, telling us a little bit about what's new, what's going on, conversations you're having here, and then we can delve into, I know, uh, I think there's a few new books on the horizon as well. So um, it's always uh, very interesting to be here at GESF. It's about the first Days are about meeting the other VTAs, uh, having good conversations. It's very good for the projects, the global projects, finding new people. Because we have a lot of talent in the room. We have people creating stuff with our students. So we have people really good in, in raising funds. So for me, that was really important to fit uh, with my, my new project. But also having fun with Armin speaking about new books, etc. So that's uh, really inspiring. And Alman, could you tell us a little bit about your new book or books? <laughs> yeah, I can. Uh, to touch a bit on what Kuhn's talking about, fun. I was asking about his hair pace because he really has beautiful hair. He's got so, it's very lustrous hair. Yeah, and as a new dad again, a third child, I'm thinking, how quickly can I get my hair that way? So that's what we've been talking about. Yeah, the new book came out, so it's pretty exciting. And we were talking about it, Kuhn and I, actually. I was thanking him for his reference. And it's coming out at the end of May called Teaching Life, Our, our Calling, Our Choices, Our Challenges. And it's going to be part of the Leading Change series for Routledge in education, which is edited by Andy Hargraves and Pak Tiang. So uh, an incredible company as a teacher and kind of still in awe of it. So Teaching Life, could you explain what do you think, uh, what's involved <laughs> if anyone's thinking about going into becoming a teacher. There's a real fight in education at the moment. Education's soul is sort of uh, receiving it from all ends. And I think there's a, there's a fight for its soul and we're trying to figure out who's going to end up on top. Or is it going to be a, a win-win or is it going to be a, an unbalanced situation? And what I mean by that is that the teachers in many systems, you're going to find professionals. And you're going to find teachers that are, are counted upon to be the professionals that we know we are and that we deserve to be based off what we do. And then there's other situations, there's educational systems where it's very much an occupation where check off the box and, mm-hmm. and you do exactly as you're told and that's it. If you really look at it, it's almost based on foundational psychology where we all know that it's a nuanced approach in the classroom that works best. So... Uh, the book talks a lot about that aspect of it in our calling and talks about how our calling used to be the status was quite high. But in many Western countries, like a, a lot of different institutions, uh, teaching has taken quite the hit. Mm-hmm. Particularly, I'm not even going to call helicopter parents. I'm going to call them uh, lawnmower parents, right? They just plow everything and, and 
hope that their kids are going to be out by the age of 20 because they've helped them out. But the reality is they're going to be there till the age of 35 because they're not resilient, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got that situation. So we talk about that. We also talk about a holistic approach in the classroom. So how do you approach the classroom in this digital age? Because we are in a digital age. There's no question there. And there is a different approach to have. Uh, and, and it's really to look at, you know, how do you design the classroom? What kind of culture do you have to have? Does it actually vary depending on communities, which it does? Does it vary depending on type of governments? It does as well. We look at the social-emotional aspect, the literacies, the curriculum content, and competencies. So that's basically what's going on in, in our choices. And our challenges is very much about how do we rebuild the community? How do we bring parents in the fold, but in an ethical way and in a way that actually grows the learning mm-hmm. instead of hampers the learning? And then how do we bring tech integration properly in? And what does that look like in, in this futuristic world? Okay, sounds amazing. So what's it called again? It's called Teachers... Yeah, Teaching Life, Our teaching Calling, life. Our Choices, Our Challenges. Okay, in May. And uh, you mentioned also, Kuhn, that you, you have a, um, a new project going on. Could you share a little bit about what that's about and... Yeah, if you're looking for any particular type of partners that might be listening in. Yeah. So four years ago, I started to teach refugees in Africa uh, using Skype. And uh, those lessons were received very well. And I discovered that more people were willing to be part of that project. And uh, right now we have 350 teachers across 75 countries willing to be part of that and teaching them math and science and and, uh, literature, uh, English. So thing is that we are doing more than just offering them free education. We are connecting them with students from across the world and offering them, offering those students from New Zealand to Hawaii uh, the right perspective into the refugees' lives. Mm-hmm. So I think we have something w- what is quite powerful and we are going to b- build our own school and infrastructure in the campus as well so we can scale up. The thing is that in another project, I based on the UN SDGs like Climate Action, um, I also discovered that students can do really great stuff when they're allowed to create and connect and, and share their findings. So in a new project, Innovation Lab Schools, we are currently creating new schools in 12 countries. So from Canada to, to uh, Brazil, Argentina, Australia and uh, lots of uh, African schools in which we are going to offer a free quality education to a lot of students. Uh, we are aiming for one million and we are creating our own curriculum based on the global goals, which will be uh, published for free in 12 different languages. So that takes a lot of time. Uh, we have a lot of teachers part of this project, about 1,000, uh, all willing to teach for free or all part of the, the curriculum, creating the new curriculum. And yeah, yesterday I met wonderful people who created wonderful new technology, like uh, some kind of a box with the internet, for uh, which will be really, really interesting for the refugee camps, having mm-hmm. no internet connection, etc. Are these bricks and mortar schools that you're setting up as well? Yeah, but it depends on uh, the area, basically. So in Morocco, we will have a bus, which is equipped, fully, fully equipped as a school. In the refugee camp, we have a shelter, which is really sustainable with solars and, and can be there for 20 years, but it also may be possible that it has to... Uh, we need to, to break that down in one year or something like that. So depends on, on the area, basically. Yeah. Amazing. And then what type of people are you looking to connect with to help scale up some of your projects? Because if they're listening in, maybe they'll get in touch as well. Yeah, it would be nice to team up with foundations. I'm willing to... You know, we are all, always searching for funding. We are all volunteers, but we need some uh, funding 
to pay for the schools and the infrastructure and, and the local teacher because uh, it doesn't make sense to only offer Skype education, you know, mm -hmm. a Skype lesson. So we also need a local teacher offering the right background and guiding this, this uh, process. But also, like uh, yesterday, I had a good conversation with AFS and they are willing to send uh, some of the students to other countries um, and other, other families. And, and mm -hmm. ALA was willing to send them to universities, etc. So those partnerships are really important as well. Part of this is about global understanding and about understanding each other's cultures and... Yeah, Starting so to get to know each other first of all, we, we will have innovation lab schools with Inuits and, and, and indigenous people in, in Australia, but also with the street kids. And there will be a great synergy between those labs, between the kids from those labs, but they will connect with students from across the world. So they have a better understanding, there will, there will, will be uh, understanding, there will be a good intercultural connection as well, but they will solve each other's problems as well. So what about Brazilian kids trying to find a way how they can avoid plastic in India or something like that. Yeah, and I think that we do need to do more on education and memorizing stuff and assessment. We need students solving problems and thinking about stuff which is really important and also critical thinking is important and also um, taking action. Yeah, because I think sometimes we, we talk about 21st century skills a lot on the podcast and it becomes a bit abstract. Um, but here I think I've heard a lot about uh, educators talking about students coming up with their own you know what's the problem you want to solve so make making sure that they're actually the ones that are coming up with that now you two are sat here you you're kind of like sort of brothers aren't you you're brothers <laughs> in arms so yeah, how, how, how do you two tend to work with one another and and what's how how have you got to know each other and you're smiling a lot here Kuhn gets the better end of the stick because his time zones ahead <laughs> So I have to get up early for our meetings. He never gets up early, right? That's but outrageous. anyways, no, it's uh, we work very well together. Uh, we sort of bounce ideas off each other. We probably call each other once every three, three or four weeks, but we're constantly on social media together and, and, and bantering back and forth. And it's good to have someone that you can bounce ideas off that understands big picture items in education worldwide, policy items, uh, and then you can also bounce ideas off on what type of practice are we expecting for the profession, right? So what Kuhn's doing is is amazing, but he also understands that teachers are, are professionals mm -hmm. and that we have professional standards we have to uphold. So for him to have a teacher within the camp, but that they're giving the curriculum and helping out with other teachers from around the world is key because you need to grow the profession within that area as well, right? Because if that doesn't happen, then the actual country that you're in is not taking a hold of what they need to take a hold of and should be a public good. And, and I was sort of thinking about this and whether it was would be an overstatement to say whether this sort of Global Teacher Prize has changed your lives and that of the other teachers and how do we kind of scale that effect as well? It's like anything in the world. It's what you make of it, mm -hmm. right? So if you show up and you're just happy to be here, same as if you were at the Oscars or at you know, the NAFTA awards or the BAFTA awards. You're just happy to be there because you did one really nice thing. and loads great, of nice food. Right? And loads of nice food and you get the little trinkets and you're happy to go, right? Yeah. But there's also the situation where you have the people that are doers, that are drivers, that are understand that there's more to do. And they sort of get together, right? They, they, they're sort of the, the ones that, you know, they sort of conglomerate together and, and realize, okay, so what's next? And that's how Kuhn and I sort of met. It was a phone call and called him up and said, hey, I got an ID for you. And, uh, yep, sure. And, and usually it's like improv, right? It's always yes, but. There's no yes, but. It's 
yeah, sure. What can I do? Right. And then we move forward with it. And, and sometimes it's a bit chaotic, not going to lie. Uh, we've had some projects together where, you know, we're both burning the candle at both ends. Mm. But at the end of the day, we always see the results. And, and you, were, you were telling me that you're, that you're a young father yeah. as well. Yeah, so I have a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and a seven-week-old. And, uh, and Kuhn has a seven-year-old. And we're both young fathers and trying to navigate that as well, right? So when you're doing things on a world stage, but we, we both have jobs. Mm-hmm. And now with this network, we're also expected to connect, but without necessarily being able to do it within our own confines of our jobs. So it's almost like a second job. Mm-hmm. It is a second job, really. And uh, you add that to the mix. So we both talk a lot about fatherhood as well. And, and Coons taught me, you know, when you leave on a weekend with the family, you leave the phone. And he's probably the most tech-orientated guy we know, right? And he's the one that shuts off completely. And that taught me to be more present with my kids, right? Which is important. So allowing yourself to say that's okay, isn't it? (laughs) It it really is. And and to to allow yourself to know that you you, you can make mistakes and that you're constantly learning. And and we're both young leaders, right? And you need to find mentors. And sometimes it's easier to find mentors that are going through the same obstacles Mm -hmm. than to ask people that have been there for quite a long time. But it's also good to have those types of mentors helping us out and sort of navigate as we're going through this. Okay. And then if people want to find out more or connect with you, join your projects, support your work, how do they go about doing that? Well, you can follow Kuhn on Twitter and then I just attach myself to whoever follows Kuhn. So that's pretty easy. But the reality is, yeah, both of us are on Twitter. Kuhn is self-study. So uh, at self-study. And I'm at Doucette Armin. It's probably the easiest way to connect with us. And then from there, we can figure out if there's things we can help you out with. Okay, wonderful. I hope you have a both uh, have an amazing summit. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So it's bright and early on the first day proper of the Global Education Skills World Forum. And I'm delighted to have met this morning Dr. Adrian Ilangavan. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. Yep first try senior lecturer at Singapore Polytechnic so welcome thank you we were speaking just outside about what you do so I wondered if first of all perhaps you could share with our listeners what you do on a day-to-day level and what brought you here to the global education skills world forum I'm teaching in a technical school Singapore Polytechnic and then uh, I teach the biotechnology and biomedical students and uh, prepare them for the industry especially the biotech students so to f- be familiar with the biologics and also how to get a job you know, and get into the industry, Singapore's in bi- biologics. Okay. Well, mm. And that's very interesting as well because, as I mentioned, so we're doing this series at the moment on education in the fourth industrial age and what that yep. means, so the intersection of artificial intelligence, biotechnology, mm. robotics, etc. I think we have a fair amount of guests that talk about artificial intelligence, but you're, you're probably the first one to talk about mm-hmm. biotechnology. So in terms of preparing our students for the world of work, could you tell us a little bit about how biotechnology is changing things and you know what we should be aware of in terms of the implications for the world of work that we're going yeah. into as well? See, in the uh, two years, students uh, join the uh, uh, universities and uh, polytechnics to get a degree and get a job and finally they get a job and then they retire but I don't think the technology will allow that in this era and uh, you need to get a degree you get a job and then you have to update yourself now and then with skills mm-hmm. with skills you cannot survive in the industry 
so you can, uh, need to go on update updating you and then gaining skills and so on so can you survive and then because of the industry is changing mm-hmm. it's not constant so you cannot remain the same and how would you describe biotechnology in a nutshell well technology you know you use in you know, a principles and science you know to produce you know manufacture something mm-hmm. and so that will help in the human beings and in their day to day life uh, also improve their uh, say life skills so but with biotechnology is that things like manufacturing new organs or things like that or what no it is not like that okay maybe you know you can uh, use the biological organisms to produce something you know maybe a vitamins or something or they have a special protein mm-hmm. so they make them to secrete that you collect the protein make them you know, maybe a new medicine or something you know is an active molecule okay yeah, yeah. so sort of synthesizing new medicines that kind of yeah thing. So, so, yeah okay and from your point of view i mean what would you like to see more of as education innovates or changes within your own polytechnic how are you trying to go about you know perhaps changing the model or you know creating new ways of teaching and learning so there are uh, quite a lot of you know humteen educational tools and then we cannot uh, stick to the old chalk and talk method mm-hmm. and that will not excite the students you must excite the students in the subject where they are interested in and you need to use educational tools and the newer tools help us you know to find new ways and make them engage in the classroom and also out of the classroom. And so what are some of your favorite tools to do oh. that? <laughs> <laughs> say to excite them usually you know simple tools like kahoot. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, say uh, then uh, edu 360 and then um, also I use padlet. Okay, padlet, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, say these are the commonly I use in the classroom because within the time frame I have to use it, okay, but uh, yeah. Okay, wonderful. Well, and if people want to get to know your work a little bit better, where should they like how should they connect with you or what's the best way for them to find you? So if people are listening in and they'd like to connect with your work, what's the best way for them to go about finding what you do? If I mean Facebook. Okay, Facebook. Okay. So it's Dr. Adrian Elangavan. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sophie. So I'm here with Dr. Jared Salatin from the States. Welcome. Thank you very much. We connected on Twitter and you very kindly responded to uh, come on the EdTech podcast. Can you share with our listeners what it is that you do on a day-to-day level and what you've been speaking about here today as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a researcher at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, and I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, which means I'm interested in how the brain creates behavior. And perhaps the behavior that we all do the most, in fact, we do it for about a third of our lives, is we sleep. And so my research is really about sleep, how it helps the brain and particularly how it helps the brain for kids, kids to learn and pay attention. So that's my day-to-day job is finding out a little bit more about how sleep helps the developing brain do its primary job. And one of your sessions here was, you know, talking about why we need more sleep and I think people are aware that they they need more sleep but they don't always follow that up in terms of action. So What are your suggestions? Well, I think I just want to pick up on one thread you just said, which is people know that they need more sleep and one of the pieces of data that I showed today which I think is really remarkable is that if you ask children if they sleep enough, a majority will tell you that they don't. And so we talk about a sleep crisis for teenagers and adolescents of not getting enough sleep during the school year and it's not 
just adults saying that or even the data saying that, children know they don't sleep enough. They, don't, they feel it during the day. And that only gets worse as they grow up. So the data that I presented today is a little bit on why it's important and what we can do about it. And the what we can do about it, I think, is the exciting, the exciting piece because we can help children sleep at a lot of different levels. We can think about how we structure our society in terms of school start times, in terms of transportation to school in the morning, finding ways to carve little bits of time out in the morning for children to get more sleep during the day. We can look at how we structure our family lives at night, how we schedule evening time, how we wind down as a family and prioritize sleep. We can work with teachers to optimize the amount of homework kids get, the amount of activities that children are asked to do. Again, making sure that the evening doesn't encroach on sleep. So there's lots of ways that we can find more sleep for kids. Do you, do you think part of this is like that there's a lot of um, kind of, it's not really self-help, but these kind of like motivational speaker types sure. on Instagram. And there's almost like a culture of using every second of every day to be more productive, live your best life, do all this stuff. Right. And actually, isn't there something just about like sort of taking our foot off the pedal a little bit? Life isn't about slicing up into these little moments. I, I think so. And I think the other problem is we live in a society that doesn't prioritize rest and doesn't prioritize sleep in particular. And sleep and rest are different things. You do have to sleep. It's not enough to just sort of slow down, although that's important for wellness as well. But we live in a society where sleep is really cast aside. It's considered in some cases weak. People brag about how little sleep they, mm. they receive. In the business world, it's thought to mean that, you know, if you're, if you're sleeping, you're not working. Um, and we pass that on to our children. And particularly in, in cases where we continue to increase the academic demands on kids, the extracurriculars that they have to do to succeed, sleep is what gets cast aside. And that is the, that's a problem for us because it's not something you can cast aside. Sleep is really like healthy eating, healthy exercise. It's part of the pillars of health. And, and everything is built onto that foundation. If you don't sleep, your, your body will feel worse. Your immune system will be compromised. You won't think as sharply. Your emotions won't be as stable. And so every aspect of us, mind and body, start to fall apart when we don't sleep. And so it's remarkable to me that as a society, we don't value that. Mm -hmm. Because I think we all know that we feel better when we get a good night of sleep. So I think that's why trying to find ways to just sort of bring this message to folks and say it's okay to go to bed at night. And from the business side, I mentioned this idea of productivity. Studies show that you're more productive if you sleep. And so finally, some corporations are beginning to pick up on that because the bottom line is impacted if, if you're more productive. Yeah, we had like a really couple of really high profile cases in the UK where there were interns at some of the bank and, you know, one of the kids died from overworking, basically. Yeah. And he was just like brought into that culture. There was no kind of safeguarding about his well-being and that kind of thing. You know, That's it's right. kind of, and then there's the Huffington Post editor who, who talks about working to the point where she was so exhausted that she fell asleep and smashed her nose on her keyboard. Well, and Ariana Huffington has really become yeah. an evangelist for sleep. I mean, mm -hmm. she's really brought the message to a lot of people, and that's a wonderful thing. You know, I, I joke that we spend a third of our lives doing it, but it's true. And 
it, it, it touches every aspect of our lives. And I think because we all do it, it's, we do it every day, sometimes it's easy to forget that it's important. We think, oh, I can rob myself of it tonight and I'll be okay tomorrow. But sleep is really mm. sort of like a credit card. If you take loans out against it, it's not just a, a, a function of sleeping in tomorrow. You have to pay the interest off. Mm-hmm. And so most of us are living in a chronic deficit. We just take little bits day after day after day. And then we do that until we feel like we've hit sort of a bottom and then we sleep in on the weekends and, mm-hmm. and we live in this vicious cycle. It's one thing for adults who can sort of set their own schedules and pick when they work and balance their life. But children often don't have that luxury. They have to go to school when their parents tell them to go to school, when teachers set their school. And yet their brain is is in such a state of flux and development. And, you know, just to give you a little piece of data in the United States, for example, the average 11th grader, which is roughly 17-year-old, loses about 10 hours of sleep during the school week, almost two hours a night. In South Korea, that number is almost three hours a night. Same, same effect. And again, two hours doesn't feel like a lot. But that buildup, night after night, you can't pay it back on the weekends. And I think we don't really understand what it means for a developing brain to go through the whole second half of the second decade chronically sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. Here's, here, yeah, here's a question. So yeah. um, I'm, either I'm a parent and I know that my children are up in the middle of the night on digital devices, that kind of thing, or I'm a teacher and I see these same children coming into my classroom absolutely exhausted, yeah. trying to make up for it by drinking Monster or Red Bull, whatever, you know, whatever brand it is where you are. Whose whose responsibility is it, and what you know? What should they be doing? Should they just be going in, pulling the plug, taking devices? How do we yeah. how do we stop the bad practices? It's a really hard question, and but I want to before I get to the technology. One thing you mentioned is Monster and Red Bull. I think ten years ago it would have been Coke and Pepsi. So we've gone beyond soda. We're in these high caffeine energy drinks now that kids are taking, and I don't think we have any full appreciation at a sociological level, at a psychological level, or at a neuroscience level for the impact of those. And, you know, whether or not they're allowed in school, some schools don't even allow soda into the school, let alone sell it in the school. Mm -hmm. The responsibility is a much harder question. I think really teachers and parents need to work as partners to help the kid. So technology is a good question. And one of the things we get asked a lot about is the light coming from the phone. For me, it's not about the light. It's just about the fact that if you're lying in bed texting, you're not sleeping. So one It's always the next thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's always it's, the next it's thing. It's a cycle. I'll do a text. I'll quickly just check the right. BBC News to see if it's changed. And we know that's how social media is designed to do. And I don't want to say that social media is bad for children. I think it's mm-hmm. fantastic mm-hmm. that children are able to express their social lives in these ways. I know you spoke to, to Candace Audgers earlier. I mean, she has remarkable work on the benefits of social media use and the benefits of technology for kids. But everything needs to be in some form of moderation, right? So when it comes to sleep, I am a believer that the one thing the family can do is to model that good behavior. So the whole family should put their phones away for a little bit in the evening mm-hmm. and recapture some of that time. I think we, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, kids on their phones. I think adults, we spend too much time on our devices as well. And so finding ways for the whole family after dinner to put the phones in a drawer and the parents can always take it out after, after the child goes to bed if they have to check email or respond to a work call or... But setting up that environment where kids sort of recapture time without it, I think will help them go to bed. 
because it's to me it's the taking the device into bed that's the problem. Mm-hmm. And so if it if it was a hard cutoff right at bedtime, that's a lot harder than mm-hmm. you know for the last couple of hours of the evening where you can sort of ease into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wean ourselves off. Exactly. What's the best sleep you've ever had? Well, I so I admit I am a long sleeper. I sleep nine and a half hours a night, which is a luxury and a privilege. But when I say I'm a long sleeper, what I mean by that is there are some people that that really need a longer amount of sleep, and there are some people that need a shorter amount of sleep. Some people are okay at seven hours, and some people need nine. And so, you know, just to, we get asked a lot about sleep need. There is such a variability. There's such a range in how much sleep people need. The best sleep I've had recently <laughs> was after landing here in Dubai and finally being able to lie down. That's um, so good. Yeah. Getting to the hotel. Yeah. It's like you've made it. Exactly. Okay, brilliant. Well, and uh, final question, who inspires you in this space? Is there a thinker, you know, a book, somebody you like to follow on social media, podcasts, etc., that you like to go back to that has kind of inspired where your life's gone? I mean, so right now, my, my inspiration is largely from the teachers. And, and, I, and I say that mainly because I'm here at the Global Education and Skills Forum. And what's so different in this environment, um, Sophie, is the we're used to as scientists talking to scientists. And really, that's not how change is going to be made, right? I mean, not only are we talking to the choir, but we're also not talking to the people on the ground floor. And... For the early part of my career, I spent most of my career doing laboratory science. So we have kids in the lab, and it's a very artificial environment. And then I started working in schools. And when you work in schools and you talk to teachers, they can tell you about how kids are behaving. They can tell you from the moment you walk in if their child is is sleepy or alert. They have such a window in, and I think they can teach us so much about how to do the science better. And what questions are the important Mm -hmm. questions to ask? And also, what are the right levers of change that we should prioritize? So particularly being in this environment, I'm inspired by the teachers who work with kids every day. And if people want to find out what you're doing, where should they go? Yeah, so I recommend if people are interested to go to our website. It's called sleepforscience.org. Very easy. That's our laboratory website. tells you a lot about child and adolescent sleep, the type of work that we do, and some resources up there as well. So Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so very much.